My name is Wes, uh, one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you uh, as well. And I'd ask you if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, um, or if you even want to take one from under the seat in front of you. If you'd turn with me to our passage today, we're going to do what we do each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, we're starting today at verse 27. When you found that, uh, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 19, beginning at verse 27. Matthew writes this. Then Peter said in reply, this is to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. And the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last what I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. That's God's word. You may be seated. Dave has just prayed for us, and this time in God's words, we'll just dive right in, um, trusting God's blessing on this time. Uh, This story is told uh, by a 19th century pastor and author, Charles Spurgeon, about a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. Some of you, I know, will be familiar with this story. I've told it at least once. He grows this enormous carrot, and he brings it to the king one day and says, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will grow. And I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king is touched. He discerns the man's heart. And so as the gardener turns to walk away, the king says, Wait, uh, I can see that you are an excellent steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so that you can garden the entire thing. So the gardener, he thanks the king, walks away rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the court at the same time he overhears this whole exchange, and he thinks, my goodness, <laughs> if, if the king will give an entire plot of land for a carrot, what would he give for something greater? So the next day, he comes in with this beautiful stallion, walks it into the throne room, and says, my lord, I breed horses, 
this is the greatest horse that I've ever bred or will breed, and I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But discerning this man's heart, the king simply said, thank you, took the horse and dismissed the man. Well, seeing the man's obvious confusion, uh, the king said, uh, the gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. So we're continuing this teaching series through Matthew's Gospel, entitled Kingdom Come, uh, and actually continuing in what we began to look at last week with Jesus and his disciples and their interaction with a rich young ruler. Um, very briefly, if you weren't able to make it out last week, thank you, Snow, or you know, didn't watch online through the week, uh, very briefly, um, what we saw in our passage from last week were basically two different approaches to Jesus, the approach of a ruler that is, we're coming to Jesus with our list of good deeds and accomplishments by which we feel we've earned his acceptance, we've earned eternal life in him, uh, kind of really basically seeing Christianity as like a merit-based system, and then the approach of a child, coming to Jesus with no other presumption than in the goodness and the grace of the one we're coming to and resting in his effort on our behalf. There was a common understanding in Jesus' day, just as there is today, that being wealthy meant you were blessed by God because of your good deeds. You, you'd done enough good things, and so you're blessed by God. Look how wealthy you are. And so when Jesus exposes that this ruler who's come to him, this rich man, is actually still outside of the kingdom because his treasure was in wealth rather than in God, his disciples, they're amazed. And they ask him, well, who then can be saved? You know, this guy's out. Who could possibly be in? To which Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Basically, just simply to say, yes, seeking to reach the kingdom by human effort, yeah, that is impossible. But coming to God like a child, resting in my effort on your behalf, you will find both entrance into the kingdom and the humility to see that the treasure I offer you is infinitely more valuable than any earthly treasures you presently possess. Okay, that's last week. This week, now... If you look at Peter's response to Jesus' response, verse 27, look there. What you begin to see is that the question we're now confronted with is less the question of identifying and then laying down treasures that are robbing us of life in God, but instead discerning the motivation behind why we're laying down those treasures to begin with, should we choose to do so. That's what we're looking at today. For I mean, even as you saw in Spurgeon's story, right, Bo both the king and this gardener, or the gardener and the nobleman, they bring king gifts, uh, lay down treasures before him, but in discerning the motivation behind why they're laying down those gifts to begin with, reveals which gift was truly given out of nothing more than love for and devotion to the king, and which was given with an expectation of some kind of reward in return. So all I want to do is just look at that question of motivation together in our service this morning just for a few minutes here, because along with being an important question for Peter and the rest of Jesus' disciples then, I believe it's also an important question for you and for me to look at today as well, as uh, I trust you would know and, and already see and believe things like jealousy, comparison, spiritual pride are, are no less issues for followers of Jesus today than they were in Peter's day. And in order that then we might be first, and not last in the kingdom of heaven, something Jesus seems to imply we should desire. I want to look at two things today and talk about rewards for service in the kingdom 
and then the generosity of the king. That's the two things we'll look at today. Rewards for service in the kingdom, generosity of the king. So if you closed your Bible, Bible app, whatever you have, would you open it again to that passage, Matthew 19, beginning at verse 27? Follow along with me as we continue to explore what it looks like to approach Jesus in a different way than is natural for most of us. And that seemed natural for Jesus' disciples as well, but that Jesus says will truly grant us the desire of our heart and keep any of us from having to walk away sorrowful from him as well. Okay, so let's look first of all at rewards for service in the kingdom. Rewards for service in the kingdom. And I want to talk about this because I realize even like in mentioning the idea of there even being some kind of rewards for serving God in the kingdom has already made some of you uncomfortable. Um, probably because if you're anything like me, you grew up in a church culture where, I mean, any talk about that, like any kind of reward that you would receive for following Jesus, I mean, that was just like corrected quickly, that was condemned very quickly, you know, just like that, that's, that's not allowed to talk that way. I mean, the only reward for following Jesus is Jesus. You get eternal life. You get a restored relationship with God. That's the reward. Seek anything else. That's idolatry. That's sin. Stop it. That, that's how most of us grew up. And please hear me. I think I, I get and understand where people are coming from when they say that and when they teach that. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that statement, absolutely. The problem is that's not exactly, or at least not precisely, what the Bible teaches if you look even just at our passage alone here today, again, look at verse 27. Peter asked Jesus what reward they can expect for having left everything and following him. And then in verse 28, rather than rebuking Peter, saying, Peter, you, you, how dare you ask me a question like that? Jesus goes on to describe rewards beyond eternal life, beyond a restored relationship with the Father that followers of his can expect. I mean, it's right there. I mean, never mind, even just looking back, if, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, you see all kinds of teaching throughout there where Jesus both implicitly and explicitly talks about reward for service in the kingdom. Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for great is your reward in heaven. A little bit later, Matthew 6, uh, Jesus talks about praying, giving, fasting, doing those things in secret. Why? Because your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And you gotta, you got to do something with that. Right? You can't just like brush it off as inconclusive. Well, we're not sure what Jesus meant by that. No, that's, no. you got to do something. What, what, what did Jesus mean when he talks about rewards for service in his kingdom? And how does that relate to our approach to him? Great questions. I'm glad you asked. Well, having hopefully now established at least, Jesus does in fact speak of rewards for service in his kingdom. I think what might be helpful right off the bat is to kind of get a working definition so we're all talking about the same thing and just talk about what does that word reward mean in and of itself? Because I don't know if it's the same in other languages, but English is just notorious for all kinds of exception clauses and like breaking its own rules. I, I hear this from many English language learners. They're like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, you're not following your own rules. But here... We can often use words synonymously that don't actually mean the same thing. This happens all the time. Uh, whenever we're reading passages, we just kind of insert a word that's similar, and we think it's the same thing. Case in point here. We often can use uh, reward and award and an award. <laughs> I can't even say it. Reward and an award in the same way, like those things are synonymous. And although they're related, they're not actually the same thing. 
Uh, a reward, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is something that is given in return for or recognition of an act of service or attainment or a stimulus given to reinforce a desired response, whereas an award is to give or order the giving of an official payment, compensation, or prize to someone. I think sometimes we hear the word reward and we substitute in award, that it's some kind of payment, whereas it's not the same thing. Hopefully that helps you to see already what Jesus is maybe getting at more when he talks about rewards for service in his kingdom. He's talking about recognition of service in his kingdom, stimulus to reinforce kingdom thought and action, nothing to do with any kind of payment for services received. That's not what this is. Okay, then how do these rewards relate to how we approach Jesus? Well, I'll get to that in a moment when we're talking about kind of application of how this works out. But first, let's deal with Jesus' specific interaction with Peter, where he's uh, talking with him about this whole subject of service in the kingdom. Again, verse 27. Here we see Peter in response to what he and the other disciples have just witnessed between Jesus and the rich young ruler, where this man, he walks away sorrowful at Jesus' call to sell his possessions and come follow him. And Peter says, we, we have left everything and followed you. Followed by the question, what then will we have? And man, I love Peter. Like, I, I think of all the disciples, I probably relate most to Peter. Um, I just kind of get him and I see myself in him a lot. He's got this hilarious mix of just like enthusiasm and passion that very often seems to like run ahead of logic and maybe even understanding what he's even talking about. Um, I, I kind of get that. And actually, you often see Peter elected in these interactions with Jesus as like the unofficial spokesman for the rest of the disciples. It's as though they all kind of get Peter's temperament and they know if we just talk about something around him, he'll probably say it to Jesus for us. Um, he's just got that way about him. I was thinking this week, like, I don't know if you know this show, but if, if Peter were a character from The Office, I think he'd be Dwight Schrute. He's just got that same kind of vibe about him. Anyway, his statement alone, verse 27, it's already kind of embarrassing. We, we have left everything. Like, it's so, it's so pick me. And then let alone the brashness of his question about rewards following after that. It just, it's, it's embarrassing to read, but it's like Peter, he's finally, like the pieces of the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler are finally falling into place for him. For if you remember, Jesus had offered the rich young ruler uh, eternal life, treasures in heaven, if he could, you know, leave everything behind and follow him. And Peter, he's, he's, the pieces just seem to be drawing together and he's like, wait a second, we, we, we did do that. Hey, hey, Jesus, we look. We have that thing you asked him to do. We've done it. We have left everything. What, what will we get? Almost like, kind of like, what's in it for us? And what I love about Jesus here is that in response to Peter's question, is that rather than embarrassing him, rather than rebuking him, instead we see Jesus respond to Peter in a way that is both kind and also cautionary. It's kind in that he reveals to Peter and the other disciples some incredible rewards that they can expect in the new world. This is a, a word in the Greek that kind of just like points to the new heavens and the new earth. They, they, these, they, there's rewards they can expect, such as ruling authority. He also reveals rewards that every follower of his can expect, including receiving back a hundredfold whatever they'd left for his name's sake, as well as eternal life. So it's very kind. He responds, there are rewards, and yet it's cautionary. And that you see Jesus as a, a but 
in verse 30, an important proviso to everything he just said about rewards, reminding Peter and the others that kingdom reversals that have been so much a part of all his teaching apply to what he just said about rewards as well. As Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And we can know that the parable about the laborers in the vineyard that Jesus now goes on to tell is a picture. It's like an illustration of what he just said by that caution. We know because, first of all, Jesus, the next word out of his mouth is for, which means I'm not going to explain what I just said. And because if you noticed, Jesus actually repeats the same caution at the end of the parable forming what's often referred to as an inclusio, or like brackets on either side of something that say, hey, everything in the middle here, it's all all related. But by which, altogether, I think Jesus means this. Yes, Peter, you and the other disciples, you, you have. You have left everything and followed me, and I want you to know I see it. I see your sacrifice, and it will be recognized in the new heavens and the new earth in ways that are unique to you. Yes, but... In the same way that all laborers receive the same day's wage, regardless of how long they work, regardless of how much effort they've given, what you must always remember is that any other rewards you receive from me as a byproduct of being a citizen are not the same thing as the reward of being a citizen in my kingdom and the new life you have in me. That's the only reward that matters. That's the only thing that you should truly seek above all. And yeah, okay, we'll get into what might feel like unfairness with that, particularly for someone who's left a lot. They'd have to sacrifice a lot to follow Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. But as it relates to service in the kingdom and rewards for service, I think that's the key as it relates to both what rewards are as well as how they relate to our approach to Jesus. Okay, because this is where I think the don't seek any other reward than Jesus people, they're right. Right? There is no other reward that, that we should or could, could kind of seek, no matter what we've left behind, that could ever hope to carry more value than new life in Jesus. New life in him, by the way, that, that's what the wage for a day's labor in the parable was meant to symbolize. That's, that's the reward. That's the one reward. That's the thing that all of us desperately need. We all need that new life. And without that reward, none of the other rewards would even matter. So, I mean, if you're thinking about your, your own life, how, how this works, how this works out in every day, are there rewards other than following Jesus beyond eternal life in him? Yeah. No, there are, a thousand percent, there are many rewards. I mean, there's the blessings of just like that we all experience when we just live life the way God designed it to work. Uh, there's the blessings of like community and support and encouragement that we have within a church family. There's healing. There is blessing. There's the excitement we feel along with all of heaven whenever one lost sheep turns to the shepherd. All these things are awesome rewards that are a result of following Jesus. And yet, Jesus' word to Peter then and to you and me today is be careful that you don't seek the blessing of those secondary rewards above the one reward that truly matters. Right? Like, like for myself, I don't follow Jesus because of the, the warm, fuzzy feeling I get being part of like a, a, a faith community and the way people support me. I don't follow Jesus because I get a great feeling whenever I see someone lay down their life for Jesus and get baptized. I follow Jesus because I get him. I get a relationship with the God of the universe through him. I get that. And then as I follow him, yeah, there are all kinds of other blessings that can and often will follow as a result. 
but it's very easy to get the order twisted, to get it backwards. And I think that's exactly what Jesus here is, is warning Peter about. He's saying, yes, there's reward in store for leaving everything and following me, but make sure that I am the first reward you seek. I'm the greatest reward that you're truly seeking. Otherwise, you're going to be in the exact same position as that ruler who just walked away sorrowful from me because he got the order wrong. He was seeking the reward above new life in me. Or as Jesus said even more simply, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. That's rewards for service in the kingdom. Hopefully that brings some more clarity to that whole idea for you. The next thing I want to look at together, the last thing is the generosity of the king. Where you see that generosity plainly pictured is in this parable Jesus tells of laborers working in a vineyard, a parable that's actually found only in Matthew's gospel. Now, parables are an interesting kind of thing in and of themselves. They're one of Jesus' favorite format for teaching kingdom truths, and yet they're tricky because as Jesus himself tells his disciples, Matthew 13, they're like, why do you keep telling these stories? Why are you talking in parables? And, and, and Jesus' response tells them that there's a dual purpose in parables. They are given both to reveal as well as to conceal. Parables reveal kingdom truths to those who seek Jesus as the interpretive key to understanding them, and they conceal those same kingdom truths from those who don't, which is why it's super helpful for us that we have these interactions with Jesus and his disciples recorded for us in the Bible so we can get an understanding of how it is we're supposed to interpret these parables. It kind of shows us as they seek Jesus to understand, he helps them. But for reasons I already mentioned earlier, we're already given a clear indication, Jesus' parable, it's meant to interpret that phrase, but many will be who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. And when trying to interpret the specific details of this parable, there are, there's a few different interpretations, kind of understandings of what the various characters in this story are meant to represent. But all commentators that I read agreed. Uh, first of all, the master of the house, that's meant to refer to God the Father. He is the, the master of the house in this story. And most agree that all the workers in the vineyard, regardless of when they were hired, are all meant to represent citizens in the kingdom of God called to serve their God and king. Okay, The church. Those are the workers, the laborers in the vineyard. Now, Jesus is a man of his time. Uh, uh, he's, whenever he's talking to people, he's using images and pictures in his parables that would relate to people of his day that they would have understood Absolutely, this is the same here. Jesus' work scenario that he gives in his parable, this would have been very familiar to people of his day. As being a largely agrarian society, they all got the rhythms of harvest and planting, how that worked, as well as the plight of day laborers who were seeking to earn enough to put bread on the table for their families. Uh, they, they all kind of would have got those realities. Uh, this Jewish workday pictured here was a series of four three-hour segments beginning at 6 a.m., ending at 6 p.m., and then payment at the end of the day for laborers. That, that, that's, that would have been familiar rhythms to everyone. But when you read Jesus' parable now in light of what he just said to Peter and the other disciples in verse 28, look there, about rewards in the new world. Again, an expression describing the end times when Jesus brings the new heavens and new earth. What begins to come up, become apparent is that what Jesus' workday parable is ultimately describing is how that one reward of eternal life that Jesus said that we should seek above all, 
that, that, it would be, that reward would be given out at the last judgment. Like That's what Jesus is describing. An act, this giving out of this reward or this payment, as you see in verse 15 of chapter 20, that the master of the house describes as my generosity. Giving out this wage is described as his generosity. Now, based on the immediate circumstances of Jesus' parable, we understand the master is being generous. Why? Well, because he's given the same wage to those hired later. Some would even only work for one hour as he gave to those who'd been working since 6 a.m. He gives them all the same. It's extremely generous to do that, to pay people who'd only worked part of the day the same amount as those who'd worked the whole day. Absolutely generous. But I don't think that's the whole point of the parable or the whole explanation of generosity. Because, follow me, I'm going to try to explain this clearly. I got confused myself trying to think of it. If this parable is an explanation of Jesus' caution, many who are first will be last and the last first, which he said in response to Peter's earlier question, we've left everything and followed you, what then will we get? Maybe, just maybe, Jesus' ultimate point in telling this parable was actually to caution Peter then, as well as you and me today, against the dangers of comparison and against the dangers of spiritual pride in the heart of his followers. I wonder if that's maybe the ultimate point of why he's telling this parable. Because think about it. Why does Peter tell Jesus, we have left everything and followed you? Why does he say that to him? Isn't it in response to watching the rich young ruler walk away sorrowful from Jesus because he was unwilling to leave behind his treasures and follow Jesus? Which means, when you look at all of this in context, start to plug people into different places, Jesus' disciples, they're the ones represented by those who were hired first thing in the morning. They're the ones who were hired at 6 a.m. That we, we see that those callings of Jesus pictured in, earlier in the Gospels as Jesus calls disciples to leave their nets and follow him, leave their tax tables, whatever it is. And therefore, what Peter's comment on behalf of the fellow disciples revealed was at least the potential for the very same grumbling against the master that Peter and the other disciples were in danger of participating in if they held on to this same kind of perspective, that length of service, uh, how much, like the amount given to follow Jesus, whatever it is, that that somehow earned them a greater reward, a greater wage than eternal life, than a restored relationship with the Father. Which means, yes, the Master was generous in giving the same reward to those who'd only worked an hour as those who'd worked the entire day. And yet, if access to the kingdom is not a merit-based system, and, and, and the approach of a child who comes with nothing in our hands to bring, but only that just coming, trusting in the goodness of our Savior, that's the only thing that grants us access, then the generosity of the Master was actually that he invited anyone to come and work in his vineyard in the first place. That was the generosity, being hired to work in the vineyard. Which is a hard word to accept, isn't it? That's kind of, it doesn't seem right. It seems unfair to be told that years of service, amount given, whatever, doesn't earn anyone an ounce of greater status, a penny of greater payment in the kingdom. It sounds reckless, and it sounds unjust on God's part to reward everyone in his kingdom with the same reward. How does that seem fair? Hopefully you see, this is exactly what I was getting at as we began this morning, 
when I said that the question we're being confronted with here today is our motivation for service in the kingdom. That is not so much, we're not talking now about identifying and laying down treasures. We're talking about why we lay them down to begin with. Why are we doing it? Why are we serving? And the reason it matters so much for Jesus and that he wanted to warn Peter and the other disciples about this as well is because our motivation for service in the kingdom, why you're serving, why you're laying down these treasures, means everything as it relates to being either first or last in the kingdom. Which means what? What does it mean to be first or last? I don't know. Have you ever been part of that fun experience in, in school where you, there was two captains in, in gym class and they picked people for the team and you got picked last even though you were pretty sure you were like better at shooting or better at whatever than the other guys who got picked ahead of you? It doesn't feel very great. You're still on the team. But it doesn't feel very great. But motivation for service in the kingdom, why we're doing it, it means everything as to our being first or last in the kingdom. Because why? When, when my service in the kingdom is based on nothing more than love and devotion for the one who laid down everything in order to call me to himself and make me a citizen in his kingdom, to, to bring my carrot to him, if, I, if we can use that same language from the story, then I'm not even thinking about comparing my service to someone else's. Man, I'm just enjoying the daily rewards of being a citizen in the kingdom and, and doing whatever I feel like God's calling me to. I'm just, I'm just living out my life as a citizen and enjoying his gift. It's only when you begin to look around you, begin to look around like, like Peter was doing, beginning to want to compare the size of my service, the length of my service with someone else's, that you begin to begrudge the generosity of the king because your sense of justice, right? your sense of fairness becomes violated now. How could he pay someone else as much as he's paying me? Completely ignoring or at least forgetting the fact that it was only the extravagant generosity of the king to send his son to absorb the justice that I deserved, that I'm even a citizen of the kingdom to begin with. Which means what's revealed many times by that feeling of injustice, that feeling of grumbling against the master's generosity, is that your service to God has really only been about giving yourself the horse. It was given only with an expectation of reward in return. I don't know where any of this finds you this morning. What, what, what's resonating with you? Um, what's going on in your own heart? How the Spirit is speaking to you? What He's identifying? Uh, and, and what's not resonating at all? How, how could I? But from my own part, as I reflected on Jesus' teaching from our passage this past week and was just like preparing to preach this message, I sensed two things. I sensed both gratitude... <laughs> really kind of feeling like that laborer who was hired at the 11th hour. And just like when I think of my, my own testimony, my own like story of coming to Jesus, the fact that I'm a pastor right now, I, I feel like I'm just lucky to be here. Um, 100%, just gratitude and sensing that. But also, just being real honest with you, also sensing that same kind of spiritual pride that makes me feel like my mansion in heaven probably going to be bigger than some other people's. Because, I mean, I'm a, look, I'm a pastor. Giving my life uh, towards kingdom service, I mean, it's got to be bigger than someone's. And I just sense that in my heart. And so what I needed to hear from Jesus again this past week was that same kind and cautious response that Jesus had given to Peter, myself, to hear 
that Jesus would say to me, like, yes, I, I see what you've laid down in order to follow me. I do see, and you will be rewarded. But remember that why I've laid those things down is just as important, in fact, probably more important than that I've laid them down. To ask myself the question, whether I've truly left all those things behind for his name's sake, or whether I've truly and actually only left them for my own, hoping to gain some kind of reward or extra reward, imagining I'm earning some greater reward than what was already promised to me by Jesus. But that's me. How about you? Where, where do you sense the Spirit pressing on you as you consider your own motivation, why you serve in the kingdom? Some of you, I have no doubt, you, you sense no spiritual pride at all. There's no conviction at all. Maybe just because you're just living out that grateful experience of life in God. You just know, man, this is his grace that I'm here and all that I have. And you're just living out generous, generously because you've been treated generously. And so you sense no sense of conviction whatsoever, which is awesome. Keep doing that. Uh, some of us, we sense no conviction or spiritual pride in us uh, because the whole idea of service in the kingdom actually isn't even on your radar. You're like, spiritual pride for what? Because, maybe, the reality is you still have never yet considered that everything that you have, that you've been blessed with, is not merely for your own enjoyment. It's being given to you for a purpose, in order to be used in service of the kingdom, to be laid down for the good of others. And there's a call in that. But you don't feel spiritual pride. Maybe you feel more spiritual guilt. But whatever it is, I want to take some time as we do now each Sunday to just pause, reflect on what we've just heard, listen to the Spirit's voice. But as you do that, I'm going to put up a slide here, and I don't want to just ask that those same motivating realities for approaching Jesus, like a child that we considered last week, would inspire and expose our hearts once again as you consider your own motivation for service in the kingdom. Why am I serving? Considering Jesus' selling of all that he had in order to enrich us by his poverty, and the fact that Jesus, like seeing him as the only treasure and reward that we seek above all others, Let's go together now, just in a time of quiet reflection, listening to the Spirit's voice. What does he want to say specifically to you? And then in a moment, we'll come and take the Lord's Supper together.